the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen, glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of all ages, amen. I'm going to be um, very honest with you, I, I prepared, uh, what, 46 slides, um, but um, uh, as I was praying the, the evening Paschal service today with you, I'm not so sure that... Um, I'm not so sure that tonight is a night for professional preaching. Um, I think tonight is uh, I think tonight is just a night to speak to you from the heart, to speak with you from the heart. Um, tonight is uh, t- tonight is my favorite Thursday is my favorite day in Holy Week. Um, um, Peter tells me that uh, Palm Sunday is his favorite. I'm sure some people like Friday and Sunday, and all for very personal reasons, I'm sure. Um, uh, it, was, it was probably about 20 years ago, I read a book about Jesus in Gethsemane. And it was talking about how, how the, the hardest part of anything that's hard to do is always to make the decision to do it. So it's not that the cross was easy in light of Gethsemane, but Gethsemane was really the garden um, and where, where most of this evening's events take place was really, was really the, the battleground upon which our salvation was won. Yesterday, we were speaking about valuation, how we value things, and how we show value for things. Um, and the process of bargaining we were talking about yesterday was really, is really uh, honest, you know, for, for honest business, is really the process of coming to a place where you can agree upon what is the fair price for something. And that's based on what that thing is worth to you. So someone might, someone might pay more for something and someone else less for something. And you might buy something and a friend of yours might say, oh, gee, that's not worth that much. And somebody else might tell you, oh, wow, you got a steal. And, but at the end of the day, what's the, fair, what's the fair price for you? And yesterday I made a, a case for the fact that you should always pay what you believe to be the fair price or not not buy even if you could underpay, but you may or may not agree with me and that's, that's fine, that's, that's not the issue. Today Jesus, really, he, today Jesus really shows us, begins to show us, I say begins to show us because it begins in scripture, but it extends into the personal relationship that you have with him that I have with him, what his valuation is of you. Yesterday we talked about the valuation of Judas, of Christ, 30 pieces of silver. And we said maybe it wasn't Judas, maybe it was the chief priest told him he's worth 30 pieces of silver and Judas agreed and the difference and why we shouldn't be so quick to agree. And we talked about the woman who washed his feet with her tears and and. And wash, sorry, washed his feet, uh, uh, anointed his head and his feet, and wiped his feet with her hair, and how her valuation of him was 
all of her livelihood, which was probably, you know, something of what a, a household could, could live on for a year. And we made the point that it was probably worth even more than that for her because she had probably, that, that money was probably an inheritance or an heirloom or something like that because women at that time didn't walk around with 60,000 US cash just hanging around. Um, so probably it was even worth more to her. So that's these people valuing Jesus. And at the end of the night, we were talking about how do you value Jesus? Um, and how can you, you know, how can we, um, how can we take our, the, the leap forward to value Christ more? Tonight and all through the day, Jesus shows us how much he loves us. At the beginning of John 13, which is the gospel which was read during the liturgy of the water, it's, it begins, the chapter begins, and we, we read it um, many, many times as, as, um, uh, uh, as, as the, the, the end of the liturgy of the water was was taking place, the foot, the foot washing. It begins in, in John 13, 1. Begins, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And the rest of of the events from John 13.1 until the 11th hour are telling us, they're trying to, to value what does love them to the end really mean? What does it really mean? So, um, I'm sorry this is not as uh, meticulously prepared as my other talks were because this is a slightly different direction and we may make it to some of the slides or we may not. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say to somebody, I love you? Like, I love you how much? Like, what would I be willing to do for you? Or what wouldn't I be willing to do for you? Maybe that, maybe that would speak to it more. As we go through um, the Gospels, we were... The first hour today, we read the rest of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And these are called the Holy Spirit Gospels. If you missed the first hour, I can't encourage you enough to go home, you know, do what you got to do, whatever chores, emails you need to answer before the day is done, whatever you need to do. And when, you know... Uh, Pack the kids' lunches for tomorrow if they're going to go to school or whatever. I don't know. Whatever you do, do, the, do whatever you need to do. And then before you go to bed, you know, just have like just the little kitchen light on and just you and Christ and read the second half of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And it's probably the longest stretch of talking Jesus does, even longer than the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus really talks about what he wants. Like, why is this all happening? It's all happening, the whole summation of the whole life of Christ. Like if we look at the seven major lordly feasts, 
The last feast is Pentecost. Like it's also that we can receive His Spirit. He wants to give us like a, a Holy Spirit transplant. He wants to put His Spirit inside of us. He wants to come and dwell with us. And in John 15, he says, abide, abide. He says, abide 10 times in six verses. Abide in me and I in you. And if my word abides in you, you will abide in me and you will bear much fruit and abide, abide. He wants to, he wants to come take up residence in me, in my life, in my decisions, in my thoughts, in my prayer, everything, every single thing, how I eat, what I wear, everything. He wants, he wants to be a part of everything in my life. But that's kind of vague. Like if I say, I love you so much, I would give you my spirit. I mean, I don't know. It's not so, it's not so clear. I can't really, forgive me, I can't put a dollar value on that. I can't, I don't know how much time does that take? How much does that cost? You know what I mean? It's so, it's not clear. So the rest of the Gospels are telling us, what's it going to cost? What's it going to cost? Right? So then shortly after that, Jesus starts telling his disciples that you're all going to deny me. Peter says, no, not me. Right? These are the closest thing that Jesus had to family, were these 12 men, one of which will betray him. But we kind of talked about him yesterday. So Jesus suffers betrayal, suffers denial. I was reading because it really troubled me that it says that he went to the garden and he was deeply distressed and deeply troubled and deeply sorrowful. And I couldn't get my head wrapped around. What does that mean? How can God be troubled? I know why I get troubled. I get, usually get troubled because something's not going my way, because something is in the future and I don't know how that's going to turn out. Um, so I worry. or I, I, that's, Those are the kinds of things that trouble me. But what, how, is, how can we say that he's troubled? How can, how can God Almighty be troubled? So I read a whole bunch of commentaries and almost all of them speak about two things. One, that he, Jesus wanted to eliminate any possibility that anyone would ever say that Jesus is, is his, his, his dying and his passion and all of that was not painful. He didn't suffer, right? So it says that he, like, it says that he was he was praying and he was sweating, and in the Gospel of Luke, and his sweat was like great drops of blood that were hitting the ground. He was so troubled that an angel appeared to comfort him. One of the Psalms says, uh, says, "I looked, I looked for one to say a kind word, and there was none. I looked for a comforter, and there was none to comfort." So the Psalm is prophesying about about Jesus, right? So that's one reason that seemed to come up a couple of times. The reason that was much came up almost almost in every patristic commentary on that was that Jesus was fully human, as fully human as you and me. And fully God. And so 
in his humanity, he had the same fear of death that you and I have. Only his fear of death, only his fear of death is not fear of the unknown. It's like we did a series about, I don't know, a year ago about anxiety. And we took a ver- ver- we started by trying to give a definition to anxiety, and the patristic definition we took like you know Merriam-Webster's and a psychology textbook, and then what do, what do the fathers say? So Saint Clement and Saint Athanasius describe fear, anyways, as the intense emotion that is almost reflexive at at the thought of the loss of something dear. So. Um, Fear of um, not getting a job, for example, would be the intense, almost reflexive emotion. Like it's 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 so intense, and you can't you almost can't stop it from starting. Um, at the thought of not getting the job, and that makes it so easy to understand what the fear of God is. The fear of God is the intense, reflexive emotion at the fear of losing our communion with him at the at the thought of losing our our communion with him there is no division between the father and the son and the spirit so it's not like jesus was worried he was going to lose connection with the father that's just that's it's just uh, impossible right maybe this will help us to understand saint john chrysostom comments on why did jesus weep at lazarus tomb like everybody's crying for Lazarus. Lazarus must have been a really nice guy because everybody was crying because Lazarus died. Jesus goes to the tomb and Jesus is crying. Hmm. But Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead in a couple of minutes. So what's, why would Jesus weep? St. John Chrysostom says he could see the soul of Lazarus and Hades tormented by the demons. And so he wept out of compassion. Out of compassion. So that same, that same weeping, Jesus knows that he, is, he who is life itself is on the verge of embracing death. And Jesus says to the disciples, he, he, he says to the disciples, I'm going to go pray, takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes, St. Luke says a stone's throw, Matthew says a distance. Okay, so what's a stone's throw? I don't know. If I were to throw a stone, I might be able to hit the back wall of the church. Okay, something shorter than that takes the three disciples, and then he t- goes a stone's throw. So there's the disciples are over there. Peter, James, and John are here. Jesus is, you know, close to the, the back, one of the back benches there. So they can see him. And he's deeply distressed. He's deeply troubled. Remember what we were saying on Monday night or whatever. God was under no obligation to do anything for us. He doesn't owe us anything. Everything that he does for us is out of grace. Everything he does for us is by his own free will, because he wants to and because he loves us. Because of the multitudes of his compassions, like we're talking about from the liturgy of St. Gregory. So he's, so he's pre- predicts his denial and his betrayal. And now... He's deeply distressed. And he prays and he says, Father, if this cup can pass away from me, if you can remove this cup. 
The most beautiful thing I read about that is Jesus was not talking about the cross. He says, for that purpose I came into the world. He says, Father, glorify your son. For this purpose I've come into the world. And we already said that Jesus glorified is Jesus on his throne, which, which on earth is the cross. So what, could be, what, what is this cup which he wants to be removed? The anxiety. The pain. The emotional pain. The, 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 the thought that he who is life, he detests death. There's nothing more in the universe he hates. He will, he will go through it for us, says the liturgy. For us. It says, the liturgy says, we were where, death whereby we were bound. And so he went through death with us. It's almost like um, if um, you're driving with somebody, you know, and you're in two cars, and uh, you, they, they tell you, follow me. And then uh, they're just going down a route, and you, you, you call them up, you know, uh, and, and you tell them, I think you're going the long route. Like, there's a shortcut. You can do this and this and this. And they say, no, 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 no. I, I always go this way. I, I don't like, uh, you know, I, whatever. Anyways, they don't want to go the easy way. And you're like, we're going to get stuck in traffic and this and that, and that's just, it's, really, it's a really bad idea. And then in the end, they're insisting to go that, the way that you think is unadvisable. And then you have, a, you have two choices. One, you could say, well, I'll meet you there. And the other choice is to say, you know what? I'll stick it out with you. Why not? Right? We chose, we as a collective humanity, a corporate humanity, chose death. Jesus says, if you chose death, I will go through it with you. Then in the garden, he's arrested, he's beaten, and abandoned by all of his disciples. I'm sure a lot of the things that I'm mentioning to you that Jesus um, encountered, I'm sure you've encountered some of them. I pray not all of them. I hope that you haven't gone through all of these things, being betrayed, being denied, being abandoned, being beaten, being arrested falsely. Then he goes through a series of four false trials between tonight and tomorrow morning. Jesus doesn't sleep at all. Every single one of those trials was illegal. Jesus didn't undergo one correct legal trial before his death. So he becomes victim of a, of a fallen judicial system, two fallen judicial systems, the religious one and the, and the civic one. And have you ever experienced, have you ever experienced um, not being able to live out your full potential? Like I'm referring to something very specific. I remember reading this in my personal readings once a long time ago, like I don't know, several months ago or whatever, not for tonight. I was reading in, in the Gospel of John, it says, and they arrested him and bound him. And I remember in that moment, I just burst out laughing. So you got God in handcuffs. Good job, <laughs> right? Your dinky handcuffs are going to hold God back. You know, it's like when they try to tie Samson up with straw. 
You know, Delilah said, what, 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 what can weaken you? And he's like, uh, yeah, crazy lady. Yeah, if you tie my hands with straw, right? He falls asleep, they tie him up with straw. He wakes up, he looks around and he ju- just pulls them apart like it's nothing, you know? Like, like Jesus, when they ask him, when they ask him, when, when he asks them, he asks them, Judas and, and company, what are you doing here? They say, to, they say to him, we're coming looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. In the Gospel of John, it says, and they fell backwards. The words, I am he, were powerful enough to make a mob hit the ground. And then they think that they're going to tie him up. They tie him up. Jesus says, sure, tie me up, no problem. Like I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. But they tie him up. That in itself is so painful. Just not being able to say anything. Because he wants to be bound. He wants to to go through these false trials. He wants to be crucified. Because he's taken that decision already in Gethsemane. He went through the anxiety, the pain, and then he accepted it and said, not my will be done, but yours to the Father. Then he gets spat at and beaten again. In the liturgy of St. Gregory, it says, And he did not hide his face from the shame of spitting. And he can hear, like he's getting spat at, and he can hear Peter within earshot swearing, I swear I've never met him. Like, again, Jesus didn't have to go through any of this at all. At, At any point, he could have just like, Aborted. Quite frankly, he's the creator. The second person of the Trinity is the creator. He could have simply, very simply, snapped his hands, snapped his fingers, and unmade us. Like, make this whole charade cease to exist. But that's not what he wants. He wants the Holy Spirit chapters. He wants to have that abiding with you and with me. And he knows the only way it's going to work is if the Spirit comes and lives in us. That's Jesus' valuation. That's how Jesus values us. I had prepared a quick little case study. of how God sees us, maybe we can learn to see ourselves in the same way. So around here is saying that God is not irrational. God has a, a, a rational way of evaluating. Like God, is, it's, not, it's not about emotion. Like at the beginning of this week, we said we're going to see whether God is worthy for us to delight in Him or not. And we're, we're going to try to not base it solely on emotion. We're going to try to make 
a rational, evaluate rational arguments, whether it is worthwhile or not, to delight ourselves in the Lord. God is not irrational either. When he measures, he, his measures are, are reasonable. In Psalm 147, verse 4 says, He counts the number of stars, he calls them all by name. And in the verse right before, it says, He heals the brokenhearted, he binds up their wounds. Like, it says, He heals the brokenhearted, he binds up their wounds. So he knows your hurts, your pains. He knows that your, your boss spoke a, just a little bit gruffly to you and that just got you, just upset you. Like after you worked so hard and you put in all those extra hours and all of this and then... And little things like that, he's aware of. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And he also knows the number of stars and he calls them by name. How many stars? Well, there's about 100 billion stars per galaxy and there's about, a, about 10 billion galaxies. So that brings us to about 1 billion trillion stars as an estimate. He knows them all by name. This is how big God is. And yet he takes interest in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment things that happen in our lives. Today's case study is Abraham. And how Abraham, God tells Abraham, as in the third icon on the left there, God tells Abraham to offer Isaac as a, as a sacrifice. Why would God do that? Father John, when you, when you, when you talked in the Tuesday night about all the... the wrath of God and all that. You talked about how like, people were doing child sacrifices and God thought it was, abs- it was beyond wicked, be- beyond any evil or wickedness that is fathomable to offer your own child as a burnt sacrifice. Why would God ask Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice? In the fraction of the liturgy today, which is really beautiful if you have an opportunity to look up the fraction of Covenant Thursday in Coptic, or just Google fraction Covenant Thursday Coptic, it'll come up right away. The fraction, at the beginning of it, it says, and it came to pass in the days when God wanted to test Abraham to know his heart and his love for him. Why would God want to test Abraham? Like, usually when people test somebody, they test them because they want to know what that person knows or what that person is capable of, or they want to test their skills. You go and do a driving test. The you know uh, drive test people want to know that you are safe on the road, that you know the road signs, that whatever, right? Because they don't know. But God knows. God knows everything about Abraham. God knows how many hairs he has on his head. God knows all about him. So why why would God want to test Abraham? The answer is to glorify him. He wants to test Abraham. He wants to put him to the test, not because he doesn't know what Abraham is made of. He knows Abraham is gold, but you and I don't know that he's gold. And Abraham doesn't know that he's gold. You see, God has valued you. And the value is here on the cross, and the value is found in Scripture. But you and I, we don't know what, that's, what that is. God has valued you and I so high, such a high value that we don't know know what that is. 
When I tell you, when I yesterday opened by asking you, what would you do with $55,000 US, right? And I could see like a few people drooling, right? <laughs> Just kidding, right? Because you, can, you, 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 you have a vague idea of what that is and you have a vague idea of what that is and, and you can connect with it, right? But if I told you like, like a hundred billion trillion dollars, what's a hundred billion trillion dollars? What, what, what is the value of, of that much money? Like, is that how much it costs to buy like, like, uh, like a Caribbean island or like what, what is a hundred billion trillion? You know what I mean? Like, so God wants to clarify to us how much glory he has prepared for us and he already like he's already bestowed it upon us like it's he's he's already put it into our account we just need to draw it out so let's look at abraham and sarah through the eyes of moses so through the eyes of Moses, in Genesis 15, we're not going to read all the slides, but Genesis 15, Abraham's about 75 years old, and he gets this visit from God where he tells him, where he tells, he tells Abraham that, you know, I know you don't have any children, but your, your chief servant, you know, like your, your, your chief steward, he's not going to be your heir. Don't you worry, I'm going to give you a son. 11 years later, you know, there's no, there's no, no children coming. Abraham's 86 now. Sarah's probably about 76. You know, 76-year-old woman to have children. I don't know. You know, probably not going to work. So, so Sarai tells Abram, tells him before God changed their names. Here's Hagar, my, my, uh, you know, my servant girl. Why don't you go into her, you know, and so on and so on. And we get Ishmael. Okay. God doesn't show up on the scene. 13 years later. So this is 24 years after the initial promise. God comes to Abraham. Now Ishmael is 13 years old. God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name and I will bless her and also give you a son by her then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations kings of peoples shall be from her do the math Abraham is 99 years old Sarah is 90 years old what do you think Abraham's response is to God Abraham fell on his face and laughed Abraham falls on his face and laughs he doesn't want to laugh in God's face, so he laughs behind his back. And he says in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? That's what he thinks in his head. And Abraham says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you forever. We've got one. We're okay. Here's Ishmael. God says, no, Sarah will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and through him, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. But I really here, we're not focusing on the promise. We're focusing on Abraham. Who was Abraham? 
Now, when we, whenever we want to talk about someone who's got great faith, we refer to Abraham, the great man of faith. This person, oh, this person has so much faith. They have the faith of Abraham. Does this look like the faith of Abraham? This looks like someone who doesn't believe, doesn't believe in God. Sarah gets a good laugh too. She's in the tent, right? Where is Sarah, your wife, here in the tent? I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said to her, No, but you did laugh. You know? No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. Right? Let's see what St. Paul says about Moses. Now I'm talking really about, this is all about, I've given, a, like I've used the same platform to talk about grace in a slightly different context, but now I'm really talking about grace in the context of the sacrifice of Isaac, right? This is what St. Paul says about Abraham in the book of Hebrews. He says, by faith Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac. I don't know what faith St. Paul sees. What we just read in Genesis, written by Moses, right? What Moses wrote about was that Abraham laughed at God and didn't believe. But St. Paul says, no, he believed. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, which he also received him in a figurative sense. What's St. What's Paul saying? He's saying Abraham believed God. And he believed God so much so that if Abraham were to take his son and offer him as a sacrifice, and God promised that he's going to have progeny like the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven from Isaac, then the only logical thing to conclude was that God was going to bring Isaac back from the dead. Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead. But where was that revealed? How was that revealed? In the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac. You see, God, God knew that there was gold in there. He knew there was gold hiding in there. And he wanted to reveal it. So he puts Abraham to the test. Not that God didn't know, but that he wants you and me to know why. So for, 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 for 6,000 years later, we're still saying the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. We're still talking about Abraham. How many other people lived in Abraham's time? I don't know. Thousands, hundreds of thousands maybe. We're not talking about any of them. In the fraction today, it says, And Abraham rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two servants and Isaac his son. And he took a knife and fire and walked on the earth and saw from afar the place of which the Lord had told him. And he said to his servants, You remain in this place with the donkey. I and Isaac my son shall go to worship and return to you. 
He says to the servants, he says to them, Isaac and I are going to go, I'm going to offer the sacrifice, and we are going to come back. He doesn't say, and I am going to come back. He says, and we are going to come back. He believed, he believed that Isaac was going to survive the sacrifice business. How? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. That's a lot of faith. God wanted to reveal, he wanted to reveal that. Not that alone. God likened himself to Abraham. Like, every, sometimes when I'm talking with somebody or even in my own journaling or whatever, I'll say, God is like me in such and such. And then I'll cross it out and I'll go back and say, I am like God in such and such. God is not like me. I'm like him. He's the original. God says, I'm like my friend Abraham. God says, I'm like Isaac. Don't believe me? In the fraction today, this is from the fraction in the liturgy today, the liturgy of Covenant Thursday. Thus, the slaying of Isaac was a type of the shedding of the blood of Christ, the Son of God, on the cross for the salvation of the world. And as Isaac carried the firewood for the burnt offering, likewise Christ carried the wood of the cross. And as Isaac returned alive, likewise Christ arose alive from the dead and appeared to his holy disciples. Jesus is so humble. When you do something, when you do something Christ-like, he turns to the angels and he says, see, I'm just like Mark. He doesn't say Mark is just like me. He says, I'm just like Mark. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he doesn't split hairs. Who's the original and who's the copy? We're made in his image and likeness. He's obviously the original. And we're obviously the duplicate. The um, school um, next door is going to lock up their parking lot for the night. Uh, and so there's one car parked there um, so you don't get chained in. You, might want, to, uh, you might, want, might want to move your car to the street. It's, it's past nine, so the street is free by now. Remind me to tell you about the parking arrangements for the weekend. We've, we've struck a deal with the the school. Jesus likens himself to us. Look at, look, at how, look at how precious we are in his eyes. Look at how he, he looks at us so, so great, so high. He, so highly has he esteemed us. How high has he esteemed us? How high? How does God see you and how does he see me? We're going to... God is not a liar. So he's not going to say, John did not do this sin if I did it. But he just doesn't get hung up on it. He just doesn't get hung up on it. He's, he's happy to just overlook it. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands men everywhere to repent. God is 
easy and quick to overlook all of our sins and to esteem us very highly. But this is for the purpose of our repentance. It's not, you know, it's not so we, we can overlook them as well. God overlooks them so we can repent. The reference is wrong on the screen. This is Ephesians 4.13. How high does he esteem us? God esteems us to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The fullness of the measure of Christ. That's where God sees you. That's where God has put you. St. Paul uses this term in Christ over 92 times. 92 times in Christ. In Jesus Christ, in Him, and so on. You add all those up, it'll probably, it'll probably break 200. St. Paul is trying to tell us something. That once we have entered into Christ, the Father, when He looks at us, He sees Christ. When you see me, you don't see, you know, you don't see my Daddy Pig t-shirt that I'm wearing under my cassock. You see a black cassock because I am inside my black cassock. But my daughter likes Peppa Pig, so I've got very colorful t-shirts, right? If I happen to be wearing one of those, I'm just wearing a black t-shirt. Nothing too exciting. But if I wasn't, I would have done the Superman thing, right? But really, I'd be Supermaning a black t-shirt and that would be really boring. So we won't do that. But, right? You don't see what's inside. St. Paul's trying to explain to us, like, do you get this? Like, this changed my prayer life completely. That if I'm in Christ, when the Father looks at me, all he sees is Jesus. Like, when you stand to pray and raise your arms like this, the Father sees the print of the nails in your hands. You see, all of the love that Christ has loved us with, all of the faithfulness he has loved us with, all of what is to Jesus' credit, like all of what is to his credit and his credit alone, he has attributed to us. He said, now, you know, like you have like, you get married and you decide to have a joint bank account. You have $100 million in your bank account. Your spouse has none, right? You go and you change the name on your bank account. You say, we're going to have joint finances. Okay, you change the name on your bank account. And now both your names are on that account. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's, he's, he's lumped us on to him. So everything which is to his credit is ours. Like when you stand and pray and you raise your arms up in the air and the father sees the print of the nails in your hands and says, this is my beloved son who is faithful to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Not just any death, the death of the cross. What wouldn't he give him? What would he not give him? When my daughter is, 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 is a, a little bratty, it's not often, but it happens. I want to give her, but I'm a little reluctant. I'm worried I'm going I'm to spoil her. I'm going to, you know, and I think twice, three times, should I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I? When she says, thank you, oh, my heart melts. I didn't do anything for her. Imagine if she was obedient to the point of death, not any death, 
the death of the cross. The cross which cost the cross, it's like a five-letter word, right? But behind it is all the stuff we started with today. All of that. That's, that's your valuation. That's your valuation in the eyes of God. Not a hundred billion trillion dollars. Your value in the eyes of God is Christ Himself. So God, what did God do for Abraham? God had mercy on him. Like when, 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 when Abraham laughed, God could have said, I'm done with Abraham. I'm done with Abraham. I'll find another person from whom Christ could come. He had mercy on him. He treated him with grace. He didn't treat him based on his actions. He treated him based on the potential that he, could, that he knew Abraham could, could achieve. He cleared his name. Abraham would have been ever, forever the patriarch who laughed at God. But we've totally forgotten that. Like that bit in Genesis 17, nobody remembers that. Why? Because we remember this. We don't have an icon of Abraham laughing at God. We have an, Abraham, uh, an icon of Abraham offering Isaac. God cleared his name. God refuses for you to be ashamed in anything. He refuses for you to be ashamed in anything. If only you and I trust in him. And he even made Abraham and Isaac a foreshadow of Christ. That's, that's how much God valued Abraham and how much God values, you, God values you. So God sees us with eyes of grace. He sees us with so much grace. He sees where you're at and he just tops you up. Tops you up to what level? To the level of Christ himself. He has no problem with that. Now this is my question I want to leave you with. Are you willing to see yourself the way that God sees you? Are you willing to look at the cross? We've been looking at Jesus all this time and saying, are you worth it? Jesus is asking you and me today and saying, so now you have a vague idea of how much all of this cost me? Are you willing to believe that you're worth it? Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.